Hey, thanks for stopping by. Welcome to our podcast, where we talk about the uncertainties in the economy, society, and employment during and after COVID-19. We'll have industry-leading experts from all around the world coming onto our show to share their experiences with us. Stay tuned and enjoy. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the third forum of our Overcoming COVID-19, Singapore's Strategy to Survive and Thrive in the New Normal e-forum series, titled The New Normal, Strengthening Our Social Fabric with Ground-Up Initiatives. I'm Steve from Peking University. And I am Sin Lu from Futan University, and we will be your moderators for this session. To start off today's session, Lily from OSG will be giving us a short speech. Lily, please. Okay, thank you, um, Silu and Steve. Right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Can you all hear me now? Okay. Yep. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for taking time to join us this evening for our third e-forums on strengthening our social fabric with Grounds Up Initiative. I'm Lily from OSG Young uh, Youth Alliance. Please allow me a few minutes to introduce OSG and why we are organizing this e-forum jointly with the students group here. Okay. To begin, um, OSG Youth Alliance is a social enterprise incorporated in Singapore. We have our presence in Singapore, Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen and Hangzhou. OSG support a network of um, global-minded and enterprising youth in development in areas such as global blindness, resilience and entrepreneurial spirit. Our core events and activity includes OSG Talk Series, our Mentor for Mentees program, Youth for Change, Learn for Exposure, and some upcoming signatures event. Like many other social enterprises under the pandemic years 2020, OSG leveraged on the popularity of e-platform. We started organizing e-talk. In April, we introduced OSG Young Founders weekly webinars, encouraging and motivating young founders to share their entrepreneurial stories to, ins to inspire more innovative creativity, resilience among the youth in moments like now. So together with the uh, overseas student uh, organization in China, FUSA, Fudan University Singapore Students Association, and SSA, which is a Singapore Student Association in Beijing, we aim to provide a platform to Singaporean students studying in China to gain market exposure. So together we curated this e-forum series addressing on the impact of pandemic from the student perspective. We hope you will enjoy what they have put together this evening and acknowledge their effort to balance between university studies and these e-forum projects at the same time. And thank you very much for supporting their initiative to seek growth and self-development through active participation in the projects like this with OSG. Without further ado, I'll hand, it, hand over to the moderator to officially kick off today's e-forum. Over to you, Steve and Simu. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, Lily. So before we introduce our distinguished speakers for the night, let us first explain the rationale behind this forum. The COVID-19 pandemic has deeply impacted many aspects of our society. Beyond the obvious public health crisis and economic disruptions, this pandemic has also stressed the social fault lines in Singapore, as Minister Grateful recently pointed out. The urgency of our task to strengthen our social fabric calls for young Singaporeans to participate more actively in civil society. We truly felt the need to better understand different concerns shared by Singaporean youth regarding COVID-19. Hence, we seized this opportunity to organize this e-forum series in collaboration with OSG and National Youth Council, NYC. 
We hope that today's online forum can raise awareness on how some of our active citizens are helping the vulnerable groups in our society during this pandemic, as well as provide useful information regarding volunteering opportunities and encourage young Singaporeans to participate in the volunteering activities that they are interested in. We have received unwavering support from various organizations to make this forum possible. We are strongly supported by Singapore Global Network, SGN, which aims to broaden and strengthen Singapore's overseas ties. Other supporting organizations include Business China Youth Chapter, BCYC, Singapore Chamber of Commerce and Industry in China, SingChem, and National Library Board, NLB. BCYC is the leading Singapore-based community that inspires Singapore youths to be China-savvy and facilitates their connections with China. Similarly, SingChem seeks to promote and expand Sino-Singapore economic exchanges, while NLB is our go-to agency for trusted, accessible library and information services. We also have two student committees, NUS Enterprise and Nian Polytechnic Global Entrepreneurship Internship Program supporting us. Today's session is on growing up initiatives in Singapore during this challenging period. This is a highly pressing issue. We have three experts on the panel who will be addressing our questions and concerns. Firstly, through the moderator discussion facilitated by me, followed by a Q&A segment facilitated by Xin Lu. So without further ado, let's start off with a quick um, self-introduction for the audience to know our speakers better. Um, Deborah, would you like to introduce yourself? Deborah, please uh, yeah. unmute yourself. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. So uh, I'm Deborah. I'm the co-founder of Society Staples. Uh, we are a social enterprise that have been around since 2015. And essentially what we do, uh, we care deeply about social inclusion of persons with disabilities. So um, we try very hard to work um, and also enable other individuals, corporate uh, groups, to try and get on board this uh, inclusive movement that we're trying to build. Uh, so a couple of things that we have done is uh, community events, uh, team building, uh, raising awareness, and right now we've also moved into training and consultancy. Okay, thank you, Deborah. Next up, Bernice, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Sure, hi everyone. Um, nice to imagine, it, like, imagine that I can see you. Um, my name is Bernice and I'm one of the directors of Readable. Um, Readable is a volunteer-run group and we work in the Jalan Kuko neighborhood, which is um, somewhere between Chinatown and Robertson Quay. Um, and we focus on children's literacy. Um, this, this focus has expanded into numeracy for the young children that we work with. Um, and I'm part of a larger team of volunteers. Um, and I joined in late 2017 when they had already been running for about five years. Um, but at the time that I joined, the preschool group was new. Um, and I currently am one of the leaders of the preschool group. Um, and I'm not an early childhood specialist, um, but I work a lot with children and young people through my um, other work as an artist and arts educator. So um, there's been a lot of learning along the way as a volunteer. Um, and it's been quite an eye-opener. Thank you, Bernice. Last but not least, Tan, may, may we invite you to introduce yourself? Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's a Saturday, so I guess, you know, thank you for being here. Instead of going out and infecting yourselves. Uh, so uh, I'm Tanan from Ray of Hope. Um, Ray of Hope is a crowdfunding platform where 100% of the funds go to our beneficiaries and campaigns. 
that hundred percent of uh, uh, of our campaigns are fully verified. And one of our big role really is to protect donors' funds. So when you donate via our platform, you know that your money is safe. It goes to the right place, and all of it goes to the beneficiary. Uh, a bit about myself. Uh, I I uh, I have a son, two and a half. My wife is heavily pregnant, due anytime. So if you see me leave at the middle of the of the panel, means she's giving birth, but likely not. Um, I used to study in Scotland, um, and my degree was in conservation biologist. So I'm a, I'm an environmentalist by training. It was during my time in Scotland where I really got um, exposed into activism, uh, human rights, and all the kind of stuff. So, yeah, so that's a bit about me. Okay. Oh, yeah, I used to um, I also work at Acres. It's a local animal welfare group that helps animals. Um, I used to be a legislative assistant for, for a member of parliament, so writing his PQs and speeches and stuff like that. So I'm into politics a little bit. So Okay. Thank you very much to all our speakers for our introductions. We have collected a list of questions from our audience on what they would like to hear about in today's moderated discussion. So now let us hear from our speakers. And to our audience, please post and upload these questions that interest you in the questions bar and keep the discussion in the chat room. So let's begin with two general questions for all our panelists. The first question relates to our target group i.e. the group we are trying to help, and each panelist um, is actually focusing on a different segment of the vulnerable groups in our society. So our question is, what are some difficulties that underprivileged Singaporeans are facing pre-COVID-19, and how has COVID-19 exacerbated the situation? Um, any of our panelists should, um, should feel free to you know, uh, jump in on this issue. So. Uh, I can go first, sure. Um, Perfect. As I said uh, earlier, where most uh, readable mostly works in the Jalan Kuko neighborhood. Um, it's one of the neighborhoods in Singapore that's considered the poorest in the sense that there's a high density of um, people living in rental flats. Um, and the thing that's a bit tricky here is that not everybody is a Singaporean. Um, they are on their way to citizenship or for some reason or other might be stateless. Of course, there are also a lot of Singaporeans. So um, in that particular community, um, people have different degrees of vulnerabilities as well. Um, so that's something that we, we sort of have to navigate with each family. Um, so of course, you know, everybody deals with different uncertainties and if your family is low income, I think it's quite clear that that means there are more challenges like having money for food and rent, having money for communications, SIM cards, Wi-Fi and all of that. Um, but I think an additional layer that we don't often think about is how they have to navigate the systems of support that are available. Um, but also that means that there are people like teachers, social workers, volunteers and all kinds of people trying to assist as well. Um, and that's quite a lot of communication work for, for some of the people that we work with. So that's an additional kind of effort that you have to put in as somebody who's considered underprivileged. And I think this is something I never really thought about um, prior to joining this volunteer group. Um, and of course, you know, because of COVID-19, a lot of parents lost their jobs. Um, and we know that that has like really... Uh, scary effects for the family um, and um, 
some 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 of them have managed to um, maybe start their own home-based business in this period of time. So some families have been able to be incredibly enterprising, um, but there's also a lot of uncertainty. Even though they have access to some of uh, some of the assistance that the government and welfare groups give out, there's a lot of waiting and there's a lot of uncertainty, and that's the main thing that we've been seeing. Yeah, I'll just stop there for now. I mean, uh, you know, talking about assistance schemes and uh, and the government does help. I mean, uh, uh, the question always is how much is enough? And because uh, our government has a very clear stance against a welfare state. So uh, example I can give you is, let's say a family of six, uh, four kids, both parents are working. And uh, this particular COVID-19 situation, let's say the father is retrenched and the mother has her hours cut. So typically if they were spending around let's say two thousand dollars and their income was now cut to a thousand the gap now is a thousand dollars the government assistance in this case called comcare typically only covers part of that shortfall they don't cover all of it because they don't want uh, the family to be dependent on the state which really is tricky because cash flow is a problem for many low-income families and once you get into debt, it's an even harder hole to dig out of. So uh, real for what we really do uh, for our beneficiaries is we fundraise for the gap of what they, between the government assistance and what they need. And um, typically for, for, let's say, six months. Of course, in this particular situation, some of our campaigns are even longer, nine months, because we really don't know what, what's going to happen, what's the new normal after COVID is over. Uh, so there's some of the trickier things in terms of assistance. Um, for the migrant workers, which I'm supposed to talk about, there are two distinct groups of migrant workers here. We're talking about um, uh, construction workers and foreign domestic helpers, our mates. I don't have to use the word mates, but foreign domestic helpers. And these two groups, uh, of course, mainly affected. A lot of the uh, news has been on focus on the construction side because of the COVID situation. I mean, I'll get more into it later as we, as we discuss. But these are the two groups that um, are... are uh, under the radar, basically, and falling through the cracks. So. Yeah, I would, um, I would share a little bit about the low-income uh, family situation because particularly for COVID, uh, I teamed up with uh, two other uh, community builders um, and we essentially distribute food uh, to some of these uh, low-income families. So Jalan Kugo is one of the areas that we serve through Beyond Social Services. Uh, and interestingly, we also fundraise uh, using the Ray of Hope platform. Uh, yeah, so, so yeah. So I, I think on, on that note, um, when we first started fundraising, uh, many people were asking, oh, but, you know, isn't government already, like, providing food support? Or, you know, why, why, why did the um, support for food increase right now? And I think what people don't understand is, um, a lot of the times, these families that may be living in uh, rental flats or maybe even like purchase flats, uh, they might be just scraping through the surface. There is not much buffer. And because of COVID, whether is it, you know, um, they got retrenched from their jobs or even like reduction in hours, that has an immediate impact uh, in the salaries that they get, right? So previously, they might be, you know, just scratching through the surface and they're doing okay. But right now, uh, you know, even putting food on the table might be an issue. Um, so, so I think, you know, just the act of us uh, providing food, uh, I think that has been quite a huge uh, support for, for these recipients uh, because that means that they can then use whatever little cash flow that they have uh, on other areas like their utility bills, their rental bills, um, so on and so forth. Um, 
yeah, so, so that's on the low income side. Uh, so professionally, I work very closely with um, the uh, PWD, stands for Persons with Disabilities Community, PWD for short. So um, I think one of the biggest um, issues that we saw, so pre-COVID, caregivers were already quite um, stressed out in terms of their emotional and mental well-being and you know caregivers uh, burnout has always been an issue uh, but COVID just you know flushed up uh, and, and just raised the, the intensity uh, by, by, by a huge amount right because suddenly um, caregivers needs uh, to be present 24 7 uh, and it's not just looking after the child these caregivers are also usually um, the, the um, mothers and also wives right, of the entire household so uh, if you look at gender norms uh, they have to manage the household right now they also have to manage the child they are also in charge of home-based learning and um, for persons with disabilities they do not really um, get access or even get taught about digital literacy pre-COVID so suddenly, you know, the whole slate of having to use Zoom, uh, having to go onto, you know, Google Drive and download documents and, you know, all these materials, that was really very stressful uh, for the caregivers as well as persons with disabilities because they're so used to a particular mode of learning uh, for those that are in school. And suddenly that was immediately cut off. There was no adaptation time. There was no prep time. Uh, so I think the whole adjustment period uh, was, was really quite stressful um, on the entire family system. Thank you to our speakers for the very insightful um, start to our discussion. Um, I, as, we have, as we have heard, all these, uh, our three speakers have uh, addressed this issue from different angles, and that's um, very, very interesting for all of us. But the common trend is that all three organizations are trying to help the vulnerable groups in our society uh, to fill, fill the gap um, that's uh, left by the government, even though they have received governmental support. Um, we, still, we still understand that, they, um, that the help is not enough for them to get through, especially during this COVID-19 situation. And perhaps this, um, this is a perfect place for us to make a distinction between grown-up initiatives and social work. Um, by social work, many of us may think about you know, professional social workers who do it as a career and they may be um, government-affiliated. However, um, our speakers today are focusing on grown-up initiatives, which are really part of a civil society. And the reason for civil society to exist is, is precisely that, um, you know, as a society, we cannot just depend on the government to solve our issues. And we need, um, we need people from the uh, uh, citizens like you and I to participate in this process to make our society a stronger one. So um, with that in mind, let us move on to the um, second question, which relates to what each of our speakers' organization does to to be part of this active civil society. Um, so our question is, what are some of the unique issues or challenges that you, are, you and your organization have faced pertaining to, our, to your work during the COVID-19 situation? And what are some of your creative solutions for these issues or challenges? So yeah, any speaker, uh, just um, feel free to jump in. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so one of the things, because we promised that 100% of campaigns are fully verified. So how do we verify? That's always the key. And as a platform, you know, what we do is we actually do home visits to our beneficiaries. Um, we check documents. Uh, we ask them their history, uh, what happened in the past. And in order to do that, a face-to-face -face interaction is important. So that was one of the trickier parts about our work. Uh, not many beneficiaries have enough data because uh, the working poor typically use prepaid cards. And if they don't top up, they don't have data, they can't, you can't call them. So um, even with Zoom, for example, 
you know, they typically don't have Wi-Fi, even though the government is trying to roll out a national plan. So without those mechanisms, it's hard for us to verify the circumstances, but doesn't mean we don't help, right? So we do our best. We try to speak to other community partners who is really helping this particular family. We, uh, we, we tap onto the government to see, can you give us some information about this particular family? So we do our best to get all this information, then we can start fundraising for them. So that's one of the challenges that we face. In terms of um, uh, how we solve some of these things, one of the other things that we did during the COVID-19 situa situation was we pivoted um, away from uh, helping just individuals. Because typically, we are folk only help individual families. We don't do organizations or we don't do big groups of people. But we realized a lot of grown-up groups, for example, like um, Deborah from, from Staples, they want to fundraise. They want to help the beneficiaries, but they're not a charity. So they can't technically fundraise. So what do they do? In this case, they, they, they come to us. We act as the finance department and um, they can start a campaign on our platform. We, for example, her campaign, we actually pay the vendors directly for food. And the vendors will, will um, uh, in this case, they don't have to worry about the finances, about handling donation money. Uh, and because of that, we, we raised uh, quite a bit of money in the past few months for migrant workers, for elderly living alone, for single mothers, for home bakers, for example, there was a period of time where home bakers were not allowed to bake, and this was right before Hari Raya. And again, this is a sensitive topic, but uh, the working poor, uh, the Malay Muslim community is overrepresented in the working poor. So for them not to be able to bake during Raya is a big problem. So we decided to raise some funds to help, uh, to help defray some of the costs. Okay, so I think that's, um, that's what we did. Okay, I can continue from there. Um, for for us, I think we 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 worked with um, Beyond Social Services and a whole group of other um, organizations, and were also able to tap on fundraised money um, because prior to this, every any funding that we received was only through private um, donations, and those were people who trusted somebody in our group. Um, and it's always in smaller amounts and none of it is um, through like an official channel like Ray of Hope. So in this time, um, the needs are more urgent, um, the amounts needed are higher, so we uh, were able to partner with larger groups for fundraising purposes. Um, and then also because we don't, we are not equipped to deal with these things, so it was really helpful to have groups like Ray of Hope to be able to manage some of that. Um, so that was one aspect of the work that we wound up doing, even though actually our focus is really just children's literacy. Um, but because we understand that children learn in like a really specific environment, so then we want to do everything that we are capable of doing to make the environment better for them to learn. Um, one of the main challenges was the digital gap, right? So um, in the first like when we started to realize that home-based learning was going to be a thing and everyone's going to be, you know, asked to stay home. Um, one of our concerns was, wow, you know, like some of these households are really crowded. How are they going to learn? Mm, how is anybody going to get anything done in, in, in a household where you have a toddler, you have a teenager, and there's lots of shouting and what, what have you, um, and you're not allowed out? That's kind of a recipe for a lot of tension, right? Um, so that was one of our concerns, but we can't really do anything about that. So what we did was we thought about 
um, how we can get a lot of refurbished laptops to our families. Um, and the reason why we did that, even though we knew that MOE and IMDA had a program, was because what we heard from our friends is that it wasn't, it wasn't happening fast enough or they were very worried. Um, and maybe like they can get a laptop, but they don't really get enough data. So we were just stepping in and doing what we could um, because we knew them personally, whereas the school um, has other issues to deal with and they can't necessarily focus on that. Um, so we just reached out to our social networks and said, hey, do you have laptops? And then we wound up partnering with Engineering Good, um, who especially was working on just bringing laptops to um, families that needed it and, and it was really helpful to have people who just focused on that and were able to get things delivered. So that was kind of a lot of fast action going on in the first few weeks of Circuit Breaker and WhatsApp messages exploding in your phone. And that was our experience um, doing this work. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, you know, readable can be your real hope, you know. I just want to put it out there. Yeah. You can fundraise with us. So we will take this offline. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, now you know. All right, okay. Uh, so for the food distribution initiative, uh, which is called uh, Good Food for Community, um, one of the challenges that we faced was really about the last mile delivery because it was during the circuit breaker period and, you know, they wanted to, the, the whole purpose of circuit breaker was to reduce movement. In fact, you know, if you, you shouldn't even be going out. Um, and usually, you know, pre-COVID times, uh, food distribution was always, I mean, the last mile delivery was always not an issue, right? Because we largely organizations would gather uh, volunteers and volunteers would go door to door to hang the food. Uh, but suddenly during circuit breaker, uh, that whole access to manpower and that support uh, was just completely, uh, in that sense, cut off. Uh, so one of the creative solutions that we did uh, was the, the team was not on the ground distributing food, but instead we worked with uh, a whole range of social service agencies that were already serving these communities. And, you know, they truly understood uh, what are the ground needs. And also they were very well aware of the emergent ground needs because every single day uh, the situation may change. Uh, and these were the people where they would collect, they would receive the food from the food caterers that we work with. Um, and then after that, they would uh, manage the last mile delivery on their own. So, so, so that was like a, like a good work around. Um, other than that, so, so that's for the ground up initiative. Uh, in terms of society staples, a lot of our, in fact, 100% of like the business, right? Uh, all the channels that we earn money uh, was all about doing events and bringing people together. And obviously, COVID just completely shut down uh, the whole business. Um, so, but we still wanted to serve uh, the needs of the community. And we knew that the needs of the community right now were quite different. So it was not so much focusing on, you know, just awareness and advocacy, but it's really about addressing what are some of the key pain points that the whole PWD community is, is currently facing uh, because of COVID. So on our part, uh, we came up with an aggregator platform. It's called sswithyou.sg and it's essentially a combination of different initiatives where it will address uh, different needs and different pain points that were voiced out by caregivers the moment um, PM Lee announced um, the, the implementation of the circuit breaker. So um, on one hand, we have inclusive online activities um, to meaningfully engage persons with disabilities during the entire day because uh, right now all the other activities that they used to partake in uh, was no longer accessible. We also had uh, volunteers that were 
uh, ready to run errands, uh, whether is it doing grocery shopping or, you know, just any other thing that a family may need help in, but right now may not have the time because everyone's uh, living at home. And we also had home-based learning support, especially for parents who did not know how to navigate Zoom or navigate all other um, platforms that uh, the schools were using. So they could call in and, you know, we had volunteers that they were just trying to help them with all these basic uh, technicalities that they might be facing. Um, thank you to our speakers for the very candid sharing of the challenges faced during COVID-19. And um, we might expect some of these challenges during COVID-19, for instance, you know, the, the difficulty of um, verifying fundraising process because of these restrictions at the moment. However, COVID-19 has also exposed or hit us at um, uh, our blind spot. For instance, um, the digital gap might not, be, might not be a hot topic of this discussion before COVID-19 because everybody was in school and uh, we were all on the same uh, level playing field. However, because of COVID-19, uh, we've seen that the needs of our vulnerable groups um, have evolved and then we have to adapt to, the, to their different needs and uh, serve them uh, in a better way. Um, it is really heartening for us to hear how these different grown-up initiatives are actually working together, you know, uh, and even working, partnering some of the social services organizations to address these issues. Um, we, are weaving, we are weaving the society together, not just uh, on the individual level, but also on the organization level. With on, it's only a coordinated response um, can, we, can we actually achieve you know, a stronger society together. So um, for the next question, uh, let's zoom in to each specific uh, organization. Zoom in, you know, pun intended, sorry. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's start with um, Deborah, Society uh, Staples. Um, um, th although this question is uh, targeted directly at uh, Society Staples, uh, all the panelists, are, 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 please feel free to jump in if you feel, find something that's very interesting and you would like to discuss further. So the question for Deborah is, what unique challenges does COVID-19 present to PWDs and their caregivers? And how can fellow Singaporeans help them under the constraint of social distancing measures? Yeah, so earlier on, I um, touched a little bit on the emotional and mental stress uh, that caregivers are facing um, because of COVID. Uh, and I also shared a little bit about the difficulties in trying to navigate uh, all the digital platforms that schools were using. Um, one of the other challenges that as a family system uh, that was surfaced up quite a fair bit was really the understanding from the public. Um, because so even till now, even after we are out from circuit breaker and currently we're in phase two, uh, wearing a mask is still compulsory, right? And if, if you don't wear a mask, uh, naturally you will already attract stairs. Uh, for someone with a disability, especially if they are a lot more sensory sensitive, uh, perhaps if you're talking about the autism condition, then wearing a mask, uh, it's actually quite difficult for them. Uh, first of all, they may not even understand what is happening. They may not have context about, you know, why they should be wearing a mask. Uh, it can get quite challenging if you want to explain that situation to them. Uh, and there's also a lot of other disruptions that they already have to try and adapt and manage, right? The, the people with autism, um, having a fixed schedule is extremely important to enable them to function and thrive in their lives, right? And right now, um, um, you know, even with phase two, not everything has returned back to 100% normal. And it's probably going to take quite a fair bit before we get back to that stage, right? Whatever the new normal means. So um, just having to manage that already brought up a lot of 
um, behavioral issues and some of them could also manifest into some violent tendencies. So caregivers had to manage that. Uh, if caregivers wanted to bring their child with special needs out in the community and they refused to wear a mask, um, there were actually quite numerous situations where they shared that uh, the public would walk past and in that sense uh, speak in a unkind tone, asking them, you know, hey, you know, are you not aware about the rules? Why is your child not wearing a mask? Uh, why are you allowing this to even happen? You know, uh, as a parent, you should be uh, instilling like proper, you know, values and discipline. And, and these things can be extremely hurtful to a caregiver. And I think a lot of times the caregiver do try to explain the situation why the child is not wearing a mask. Uh, but unfortunately, the, the society and the community is just not so forgiving, uh, even to today. Um, and also when you talk about autism, a lot of the times, autism is quite an invisible disability as well. So, you know, at one glance, if you see someone not wearing a mask, it is also quite difficult for the community to um, maybe think about or, or just hold that possibility that this person may have, you know, autism uh, or there may be some other reason why he or she is not wearing a mask. Um, so because of all these situations, uh, caregivers have retreated even further uh, and they say, you know, instead of uh, going out and you know attempting to to try and give my child some form of regulation um, and you know kind of integrate them back into normalcy because usually um, outdoor sensory engagement is very important for the child but because of all these situations they have decided it is way easier for me to just cope up at home and just you know manage and deal with uh, my child's um, um, behavioral needs and, and, and tendencies. Uh, so that has also caused a major disruption in lifestyle um, adjustments. So pre-COVID, uh, this was already an issue. And then right now with COVID, uh, the whole situation is just yeah a, a lot more unacceptable and unforgiving. Thank you, Deborah, for um, sharing these um, uh, very important lessons for us. I think um, some, one of the key lessons for us uh, from what uh, I've heard from your sharing is that we should always suspend our judgment because um, you know, the, although we are talking about disabled people, we can some of them, we, we can't really see um, the issues they are going through or the challenges they are facing. So the next time when we see some pers uh, someone out on the street without a mask, maybe we should first ask ourselves, like, um, is there a reason behind that or before taking out a camera and just posting it on Storm? And I think um, it is very important for us also uh, to to um, bear in mind that um, you know uh, each of us ha um, ha has a part to play to, um, to 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 address all the uh, to address issues. For instance, um, even the word dis disability might be stigmatizing. Maybe um, instead of thinking and and just you know saying um, things like "oh, this person is disabled," we may we we have to change our mindset really to 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 think of them as differently abled rather than being disabled because they are an integral part of our society. And we are just because we, 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 are, you know, uh, we are healthy and uh, we can do um, things that they are not able to do, that doesn't make us more powerful than them. So the next question we have is for Bernice um, from Readable. And um, this is regarding one of the social fault lines that COVID-19 has exposed, which is our widening digital gap um, that we have um, briefly addressed just now. And given that there will be a greater emphasis on online learning in the near future, how will Readable adapt its program and prepare its volunteers to teach and mentor in an online setting? Thanks, Steve. Um, I just want to add to the earlier statement of this idea that neurodiversity is uh, uh, an essential part of our social makeup. Um, and I think part of that diversity is also a diversity of experiences. Um, and, and I've learned a lot from some of the families that I've met. Um, 
you know, because their histories are different, their, their understanding of culture and um, how we function in society is quite different from mine. And there's a lot to be gained from just listening to their perspectives. Um, so, so the assumptions that we might make about people um, have reasons and it's, it's always for me interesting to listen to what those reasons are about, you know, why they are the way they are um, or why they think the way they think. Yeah. Um, and I think specific to this online learning question, um, it's not really our preference to rely on online learning. Um, even though um, we've been using technology a lot and we, we continue to rely on technology. Um, so for example, um, even in our face-to-face -face classes, we will use um, iPads that have been donated to teach um, some of the stuff and it's quite effective for some children, not all. So it's something uh, that we use as a tool. Um, but in terms of online learning and like fully relying on screen screen to screen rather than face-to-face, -face, uh, especially for younger children, it's not our preference. Um, firstly, because we don't actually understand how much screen time is too much screen time. Secondly, also because being in the same physical space um, allows us to share the same sensory environment and having the same sensory environment allows us to really facilitate their learning in a more effective manner. Um, one, of the, one of the approaches that um, the readable preschool group is quite um, influenced by is the Reggio Emilia approach, um, which is an, uh, it started in Italy and it's essentially this idea that um, you, you co-create meaning with your students. So the teacher is a facilitator. Um, we're not, again, we're not experts, but we're influenced by that kind of thinking. So when we teach the children, um, it is quite important that we are able to kind of touch and see the same things. So that's quite difficult if you have a screen and you have maybe, maybe we are in a breakout room and I have two other kids in the same room and then another volunteer, right? And, but one kid has a baby sister like crawling all over them and then you spend like half the time trying to deal with technology and is the earphone working? How come your camera's not working? Um, like, can you try and mute yourself? There's a lot of background noise. And then have the time, you know, like five minutes spent telling the sister, oh, are you going to join us? No, you're not going to join us. Okay, so then can you sit? Can you move away? Can you go somewhere else? Or can you please sit down? So there's a whole lot of negotiation that you need to deal with um, that takes away from just the learning that we're trying to do. Um, that's not to say that you don't learn anything from these social situations. I'm sure the children learn a lot about patience and they learn a lot about giving space to each other and they learn a lot about like respecting um, other people's time. They learn also how to use Zoom, which is quite fascinating to watch. Um, but you know, um, for us, like we like to really focus on um, just being able to meet with them socially. Um, so one of the things that I've been talking about is that when we, when we started Circuit Breaker, we knew that we wanted to shift online so that we can keep the social connection going. Because we didn't know how long this would last for, but we also didn't want to have too much screen time. And then we also didn't know how the children would deal with things emotionally. So we shifted our focus away from a more structured syllabus. 
um, and we shifted to thinking more about how, how we can have discussions and how we can just focus on conversations. Um, and through just having conversations, we practice language skills. And then along the way, as we figured it out, we figured out how um, different um, our curriculum plans might fit in. Um, and we do have a, a curriculum specialist who volunteers with us and she writes some of these things, especially for our children. So I think there's been a lot of on-the-fly learning and problem-solving. Um, and I think that for us, technology is definitely something that we will work with. We'll, we, we definitely work with their dig digital literacy skills. Um, with the older students who are in secondary school, um, they've been working even pre-COVID on you know, things like social media, um, the dangers of the internet, but also how you can use um, these tools to have your voice be heard. Um, and, and these are the things that we want to give, give them and have them practice. Because firstly, it's about them being self-advocates. And secondly, it's also about um, them just developing social and literacy skills. So it kind of ticks several boxes. Yeah. Oh, that was long. Sorry. Honoris. Thank you, Bernice. That's a very interesting sharing. I think uh, Bernice has really allowed us to take a step back and think about uh, education, you know, even in a broader picture. Um, we, as, as much as we want to talk about online learning and, and how, how effectively we can teach uh, the vulnerable groups, we have to think that education and teaching experience is really more than just content delivery. Um, the teacher is not there just to, uh, to you know, uh, pump all the knowledge they can to the students. As someone with uh, seven months of relief teaching experience, I can attest to that. Uh, the emotional and social bond, uh, how we bring up, how we build the students, how we mentor the students, how we set a role model is really important um, in, in, the whole, in the education experience itself, rather than what they learn in the, cl um, in the classroom or what they do during exams. And um, th this is, I mean, um, I'm personally very, um, how do I say, um, uh, touched by, by our sharing. And uh, we hope to talk more about it during the uh, Q&A session. So uh, last but not least, we have our last individual question. And this is uh, directed to Tian from Real of Hope. So our question, uh, no, this is a question that's on many of the attendees' minds actually, is that as seen from Singapore's COVID-19 situation, migrant workers are heavily impacted during this time. So what do you think are the key reasons for this? And more importantly, how can we help? Okay, migrant workers. <laughs> this is a, uh, the fundamental problem really is that they are not Singaporeans. They cannot vote, right? So uh, again, I'm quoting, I forgot his name. Um, I'm quoting somebody here, but we cannot allow the tyranny of the majority to trample on the rights of the minority. It's a very big quote, and it may sound very scary, but this is what's happening in Singapore. Um, in terms of social change, uh, ten, maybe five to ten years ago, I think you would argue that uh, people don't really know much about migrant workers. They're like, ah, yeah, these migrant workers. You know, they just come here, you know, they come here and work, then they go back home. They come here and work, they go back home. We don't even care about them, right? We, we hide them away in, in Kranji, in Woodlands, you know. They come out on Sundays, Little India, we get annoyed for a while, then they go back. Uh, but the, the migrant groups have done a lot, and I really mean a lot, in terms of the awareness. They have done home, TWC2, HealthServe, MWC, all of these groups have done a lot. But of course, COVID-19 happened. And uh, you know, it's been talked about for many, for many, many 
well, I won't go into it, no. Conditions of the dormitories, how we treat our workers. So that part, I think, uh, is something that has been brought to the forefront. And one of the things that we talk about in the sector is if things were to go back to the way they were before COVID-19, then we would have failed in every front, whether it's with migrant workers or vulnerable population or, or the way we help our, our working poor. So that's on the migrant worker side, uh, the construction worker side. On the, on the foreign domestic helpers, not much has been talked about them. If Singaporeans don't care about the workers and the helpers, the government wouldn't need to care. Right? So uh, with the foreign domestic helpers, some of the issues they're facing is they, because they live with their employer. Just imagine yourself, you live with your boss 24-7. Okay? You have to ask her for permission for rest day. You have to depend on her on food on shelter. Of course, there are good employers and bad employers. I don't want to say everybody is bad, but because their rights are so little and they have to ask for permission for everything, can imagine doing COVID-19 when everybody's stuck at home for two months. They cannot, and the only rest time they have is on a Sunday where they can meet their friends. Uh, most of you here are studying overseas. You know what it's like, right, to be in a foreign country where you depend on your friends a lot for social support. So for our foreign domestic helpers, it's the same thing. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, the other issue of, of um, abuse, and, but that's something else. So for these two, uh, these two societies, um, I think we have a poll question later about how many, how, what are the numbers of, of workers you can, you can make a guess later. But for these two sections, really, is very tricky. We array of hope, a lot of our campaigns are for migrant workers and domestic helpers because they don't have healthcare. They have insurance, but the insurance typically don't cover enough uh, for their healthcare. So if, if they fall sick, the employer will buy a ticket. Now nah, you take the ticket, you go home now. And then well, what can she do? So nothing she can do. She can, she can call MOM. She can call the government. But very limited. And because the power, the power imbalance between the employer and employee is so strong, typically, okay, like, you buy a ticket for me, I go home. Uh, what do you want me to do? Right? If they are here, the, the bills can go up to $30,000, $40,000. And they are good employers. We have a few who actually come out of their own pocket to pay for the workers. But um, not everybody's like that. And that's why we fundraise for them, to help fund for the medical fees. Um, yeah. I can go on on about the plight of this particular marginalized group, but I think I will, I will stop there because I get very agitated when I talk about, <laughs> about the issues that they're facing. But they are, good, they are good people helping. And one example I will give is this COVID-19 crisis, you look at the amount of outpouring that has come out for the workers versus that lady who wrote into Lin Zhaopao and said, oh, they're unhygienic, that's why they got COVID. It's, it's a minority, I believe. But most of us, the amount of money that we have raised, just one campaign alone for us, we raised $800,000 for migrant workers. There are a lot of other campaigns that raise a lot of money. So that's the good news. Um, and then I'm also going to quote uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Obama. Now, the arc of uh, moral justice is long, but it bends towards um, justice. So, uh, we, but it doesn't mean we don't do anything about it, right? We all have to do, a, do our part. Um, so, I think this is the start of something good. And I think the government now understands that we care about these workers and they must do more. Um, okay, sorry, I need to stop. <laughs> it's okay. Thank you, Tan, for the very frank um, discussion. And... Indeed, the arc of history is long, but it will always bend towards justice. However, we cannot take that for granted. We cannot assume that it will, it will ultimately uh, bend towards justice. And it takes every part, every single one of us 
to be part of this collective effort to make a positive change in our society. And I think Tai has shared a very insightful point regarding um, how you know this problem with foreign workers, be it construction workers or, or domestic helpers, is an institutional one. We can see that um, if we don't, um, it's not that um, we can address this by just making uh, a change at the organizational level, but it, it, we, we need to take a whole society approach to rethink who we are as a society and what, what do we really value and what, and what is our relationship with these people who are integral to our lives in Singapore. So um, speaking, I mean, now we are getting really personal into, you know, um, these social issues and how we are so, um, um, how do I say, uh, invested into, into making our society a better place. Um, and I think we would like to, um, you know, finish our moderator discussion session, on, uh, you know, a more of a personal question. And this question uh, we are going to address to all three speakers. And the question is, what is the most important reason for why you chose to dedicate so much of your time and effort into the ground up initiative that you are currently doing? And yeah, any of the speakers feel free to respond to this question. I guess I can start again. Uh, the, it's, I mean, my exposure, my exposure overseas really taught me a few things. Um, in Singapore, typically when, uh, when governments are strong, civil society is typically weak. Right? The reverse is true. So uh, Hong Kong, for example, Taiwan, weaker governments, very strong civil society. And this civil society includes gangs, like gangs are civil society, they are tribes, they are community, which is why, you know, the, the, you know, democracy is stronger in Hong Kong and Taiwan. I'm not suggesting that those kind of democracy can be in Singapore. I'm not. I know this is also supported by government agencies. I'm not. But I think the government is starting to understand. I think I answer one of these questions that they cannot do everything themselves. They need civil society. They need advocates. I use advocates instead of activists. Because okay, advocates, it's, the word advocate is a less, less strong. They need advocates to, to help fill gaps. Like how, how, how um, Bernice doing this, instead of waiting for MOE to come up with an, an IMDA for laptops, they, they decide to work to find laptops and give to the beneficiaries. Same for their part, right? Um, com coming up with food and delivering to the beneficiaries of a rare food will be fundraised. Uh, so for us, uh, for, for me personally, it's about filling gaps, it's about making an impact. It's a very generic answer, but everybody really can make a difference. Um, you don't have to wait for somebody else to do something. Like COVID-19 is a very good example of how a few group of people can come together and do something good. So that's my, my personal journey. Yeah, I think for me, it's quite uh, similar as well. I mean, the, the, the fact that I started a social enterprise, you know, with the amount of like commitment and investment that I'm already putting in, uh, it's, it's really because I care a lot about the community. Um, and, I, and, and to me, as long as I am able to do something for them, whatever that, that means, uh, as long as it's within my capacity or I can mobilize more people to do it, uh, I will, right? So whether COVID or not, uh, I think it has always been a very straightforward answer for us and, and everyone at, at, uh, in the organization as well. I think um, we always believe that we are able to make a difference, uh, we can make an impact. Um, and so we try our hardest uh, to, to, to try and do that. Uh, and I think personally, it aligns uh, with my values uh, and what I care about as well. Um, I, I recognize that I am very privileged. 
right? Whether you talk about my race, uh, you talk about my um, family background, you talk about my education, I am extremely privileged. Uh, and I'm not afraid to say that out because I know that these um, privileges, which I did not earn on my own, they were just given to me based on where I'm born, based on who my parents are, um, um, yeah, these, these things were essentially given to me. And, and I know that with this amount of uh, privilege that I have and, you know, all the gains and all the benefits that I've gotten, um, I, I want to channel it uh, to ensure that I help to level the playing field for other people. Uh, and both of my brothers have autism. So I know deep down from a very, very young age, the amount of discrimination, stigmatization, and, you know, just how they are constantly being treated as second-class citizens, um, even when policies are made, you know, PWDs are usually not taught at the forefront. It's always, I make the policy first and then, you know, someone will say like, oh, but you know, what about PWDs? And then people are like, ah, yeah, okay. Then, you know, let me like make some sort of, uh, you know, exceptions and so on and so forth. And a lot of marginalized groups are actually like that, right? People don't place them at the forefront. And it's not so much about who comes first, right? It's quite similar to like Black Lives Matter. It's not that when I say Black Lives Matter, I mean, you know, white lives and all other lives don't matter. But the fact is, you know, um, these people have been so marginalized, they've been so neglected uh, that I think more light needs to be shed on them, more attention, more awareness needs to be given to them. And I think that's why I, I do the work that I do. Yeah, I, I think that that's really powerful um, that this remembering that I'm part of this, I'm not parachuted into any community, even though I did go join this thing as a volunteer, I was always part of this wider community. I just didn't see it or I didn't recognize it. And I think that that's something um, that continues to power my, my efforts, um, that I'm continuing to be part of a community, a community that believes that there's equality for everyone and that also understands that even though we believe in equality, it doesn't mean that we have the same privileges, right? So then the social capital or whatever kind of stuff that you have, um, it's not just about the transaction of like, here, you need this, I give you not, right? It's not just about the resources, but it's about building that relationship that's quite important um, in terms of building a stronger community and building a stronger civil society. Because if you don't even have trust in a relationship, that transaction counts for nothing. And I think that, that the work that we do as volunteers and the work that we do as so-called ground-up initiatives is really powered by that. Thank you to our speakers for the very moving and inspiring speech. And um, one of our key aims of this forum is actually uh, hoping that this, um, um, this discussion can inspire more young Singaporeans to join our cause to make our society a better one. And I was especially moved by Deborah's uh, point about reflecting our privileges. Because my, my all-time favorite philosopher, John Ross, he wrote, uh, he wrote that we are uh, our, our achievements are morally arbitrary. We are born into these privileges, and it is our moral duty to to use whatever gifts we have to make our society a better place. And before we move on to the Q and A session, which is going to be super interactive and um, hosted um, by Sinlu, some of our speakers actually have uh, come up with some poll questions to ask the audience about some of um, questions related to uh, the social issues that we are discussing. So uh, can we please have the poll questions for attendees to respond to? Thank you, yes, um, this is perfect. And uh, while the uh, attendees are responding to these questions, I will pass the time to Sinlu to continue with the Q&A session. 
And that was the end of our panel discussion in part one. When we come back, we'll have the exciting Q&A session with our panelists in part two. Stick around.